I'd like you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. First Corinthians chapter eight. And I'm going to read verses one through six. First Corinthians eight, verses one through six. Follow along as I read. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. You might be wondering, why in the world is he preaching from that passage this morning? Uh, this is Father's Day. What in the world does eating meat sacrificed to idols have to do with Father's Day? I mean, you know, does this have something to do with barbecues or something? Or what you have for lunch? No, I'm not going to preach about barbecues or meat offered to idols. I am going to preach about and to fathers. And what I want to do this morning, really, I read that passage just to give me an excuse to read verse 6. And what I want to do this morning is to shatter the drabness and scatter the haze that our own fallenness has whipped up to hide the glory of fatherhood from us. I want to blast away the flatness. I want, to, I want to blast away the ho-humness that has lulled our culture into a stupor. Before we can talk about fatherhood, before we even begin to talk about fatherhood, I want for us to begin by thinking about everything. Can you do that? <laughs> can you think about everything all at once? What I want you to think about is how our society looks at everything. According to the way our society thinks, everything in the world is just the result of time plus chance plus matter. The, the vast glories of solar systems and suns and, and galaxies are coldly analyzed in terms of gases and heat and hydrogen and, and stuff. The intricate dances of honeybees are reduced to nothing but bare instinct. Bare instinct that developed over billions upon billions of eons. Every human emotion is trimmed down to chemical reactions in certain regions of your brain that can be mapped on some kind of a computer screen. The sense of beauty it is simply a biological response, if beauty even exists at all. And if you think about it, in our society, even men and women are not all that different from a virus or a bacteria. They're just specks in the universe. We live in a culture that dilutes our minds 
by the rationalism of explanation. <laughs> In other words, everything is so analyzed, so explained away that we are left with nothing. We live in a, in a culture in which nothing means anything. It's as if we live in a land of, of constant fog, where there's this constant fog, where colors are washed out, where details are muddled. There's no, there are no scenic overlooks that provide breathtaking views of realities that are bigger than us. We all just muddle around in perpetual grayness. And this wet blanket of drabness that we live under as a society brings with it an almost total lack of imagination. And I'm not sure whether our lack of imagination is a symptom or a cause of our drabness. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But our culture has so flattened out everything, so analyzed everything, so explained away every notion of wonder and greatness that we've lost our ability to imagine. Just think about this. What is... What is a lack of imagination? How would you define it? How would you define or describe a person who has no imagination whatsoever? Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you're like that. A person with no imagination lives as if what he can see and touch and hear and taste and smell is all there is. As if the only things that are real are the things that he can sense. Now, do you see how wicked that is? Am I saying that having a small imagination is a sin? Yes, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. A total lack of imagination is not neutral, especially when your lack of imagination is a direct result of unbelief. That's really what it is, isn't it? Isn't it blatant unbelief to live as if all there is is what you can see? Isn't it blatant unbelief as if everything can be explained by atoms and chemicals and instinct? Isn't that just blatant, wicked unbelief? You see, that kind of unbelief is is the air that our culture breathes. And none of us is immune to that. We have all filled our lungs in one way or another with, with this air of unbelief that leaves us flat and bored with withered imaginations that can only see the stuff right in front of our eyes. <clears throat> now, if that's what a person who lacks imagination looks like, if a person who lacks imagination lives as if the only things that are real and true are the things that he can sense, then what's the opposite of that? How would you describe a person who has a well-developed sense of imagination? Well, the person with a well-developed sense of imagination is a person who can really see what's really there. Because imagination is seeing the invisible. It's the ability to make connections between the visible and the invisible, between heaven and earth, between the past and the present and the future. That's what imagination is. Now, think about that. Do you realize how vital that is to the Christian life. You cannot possibly be a good Christian without having a good imagination. And here's why. You and I don't live, none of us live out of what we can see. All of us live out of what our imaginations do with what we can see. 
And if our imaginations are shriveled and atrophied and limp, then our lives will be shriveled and atrophied and limp. And our, our experience of the Christian life will be shriveled and atrophied and limp. But you see, we, sh- we should live out of a rich imagination. Not, I'm not talking about making things up that are not real, but living out of all the truth that is real that we cannot see with these eyes. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, all right, first you start talking about meat offered to idols. What's that got to do with Father's Day? Nothing. Okay, now you're talking about imagination. What's that got to do with Father's Day? Well, really, it has everything to do with fathers. You see, fathers, if you look at yourself with the eyes of faithful imagination, you can see that you are filling one of the most significant roles in the universe. Being a father is not just the result of biological functions. It's not the product of our traditions. It's not the spin-off of our societal mores. Being a father has its origins in the being and the character and the nature of God Himself, and it's woven into the very fabric of the universe. We know that, of course, based on the authority of God's Word. Think about those verses I just read a minute ago from 1 Corinthians 8. Think especially of verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. See, when when the Apostle Paul wrote those words, or when the Holy Spirit breathed those words through Paul's pen, He wasn't just making something up. He wasn't just making something up, just grasping for a nice picture of God. And he wasn't just using fatherhood as a convenient illustration to describe something about God. He is saying that the nature of God is Father. There is but one God, the Father. There is no other God. The God who is real, the God who exists, the one and only true God is Father. That's what He is. That's who He is. God did not take on fatherhood at some point in His existence. He has always been the Father. And God certainly didn't just use fatherhood as a convenient way of describing Himself. He he wasn't just looking around His creation and just trying to figure out, okay, what can I use that would be a nice picture of myself? Okay, I'm going to look around. um, Aha! I know, it's fatherhood. That's it. That's what I'll call myself. Yeah, that. That's not what happened. Actually, it's totally the opposite. Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, these are familiar verses to us. He says that God is the Father from whom all fatherhood derives its name. So which came first? God came first in His eternally existing state of fatherhood. So God created fatherhood among us humans to point to the greater reality of Him and His fatherhood. Now, when Paul wrote those words I just quoted in in Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, that God is the Father from whom all fatherhood derives its name, I believe that he was hinting at a reality that goes far beyond fatherhood itself. I believe 
He is actually pointing to a magnificent reality that has to do with everything. He was pointing to the reality that the entire created universe was made by God and for God. We've already seen that in, in 1 Corinthians 8.6. All things were made by Him. All things were made through Him. We exist for Him. All things, every aspect of this universe was made by God and for God. Nothing is accidental and nothing is arbitrary. Nothing just happens to be the way it is. Paul says the same kind of thing in Colossians 1. He says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In other words, God is the goal and the end of creation. He is, he is the ultimate reality to which everything points. He is the one who gives meaning to every detail of the universe. He alone holds every part of the universe together and makes it make sense. Think about it. Why is the world like it is? Everything that exists in the world exists to point to the truth about God. We live in a world with soil and roots and tree trunks. We live in a world with gardens that are tended. We live in a world with vines that support branches that bear fruit. We live in a world with rivers that make cities glad and springs that, that gush out of rocks and oceans that cover the earth. We live in a world where mountains soar to the heavens. We live in a world where there is such a thing as east and west. We live in a world where fortresses stand firm against all assaults. We live in a world where seeds fall to the earth and die, but they, they rise to bear a glorious harvest. We live in a world where grapes are crushed and wine flows that gladdens the hearts of men. We live in a world with doors and roads and light that pierces the darkness and bread that nourishes and yeast that permeates. We live in a world where sheep know the voice of their shepherd, where they follow him, where shepherds search for their lost sheep until they find every last one of them. We live in a world where lions roar and eagles soar effortlessly on strong wings where good kings rule justly and they make laws from holy thrones, where husbands choose and pursue and capture and delight in and cherish and love and live and die for wives who, who respond to that love with glad-hearted submission and loving respect. And we live in a world where fathers care for their children and give them bread and fish instead of stones and serpents. Where fathers encourage and exhort and implore and teach and discipline their children for their children's good. Where fathers welcome and embrace erring sons and daughters. And they, they cast robes around their shoulders and place rings on their fingers and sandals on their feet. And throw parties for them when they come home. 
That's the kind of world that we live in. And God designed all of that exactly that way. You see, the Lord God Almighty made a world where all of those particular things are real and true, not just on a whim or by some kind of arbitrary chance, but He made all of those details with the specific purpose of pointing to Himself. I mean, think about it. Did we really think? Did we really think that all the details of our universe were accidents? That just happened to be that way? That all these things just happened to haphazardly develop, but after all, you know, the entire world could have been totally different if certain molecules had aligned in certain different ways by chance, but this is just the one we happen to get. You see, that's what our unbelieving, unimaginative, flat, dreary culture would have us think. But it's not true. The reality is much more magnificent than that. The reality is that our whole universe is shot through with glory. Everywhere you look, it's everywhere if only we had eyes to see it. Everywhere we look, we should be seeing what is invisible but is very real. We should be seeing the God who made this world to declare His own glory in every little detail. Think about it. When we sing, we're going to sing this hymn in a few minutes. Think about what we're going to be singing when we sing this hymn. This is my Father's world. And to my listening ears all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand the wonders wrought. This is my Father's world. The birds their carols raise. What are birds doing when they're singing? Just, I mean, what does our culture tell us that birds are doing when they're singing? It was making noise. Why? So they can attract, you know, the member of the opposite sex so they can make little birds. And It's all a matter of biology and chemicals and chance. This is my Father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their Maker's praise. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. And the rustling glass, grass I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. Do you, really, do you really live life that way? Do you really see the world that way? Now, brothers, do you see what that has to do with fatherhood? Being a father is not just about you and your individual life and your individual responsibilities. It's not just about biology and paychecks and making it to the soccer games every now and then. Being a father is really, if you'll have eyes to see it, about the very nature of the universe that God has made. It is ultimately about the very nature of God Himself. You see, to be a father is to take on the earth shaking responsibility of participating in glorious ways in this one big story that the universe was designed by God to present. That's what being a father is really about. You see, fathers, another way of looking at it, fathers, no matter who you are, 
no matter what your family heritage is, no matter how poor or rich you are, no matter how educated or uneducated you are, every one of you fathers, you're a king. You are kings of entire realms. You're home. You stand in the place of a king. Another way of putting it is that you stand in the place of God in your home. And that's not just a show or a sham. It's not what you're pretending to be. It's what you actually are. And God's made it that way. Is that how you see your life? Is that how you see yourself? Is that how you see your role? Do you see the glory of fatherhood? The glory of fatherhood that lies just below the surface of every responsibility, lies just below the surface of every provision, every act of loving discipline, every encouraging word, every self-sacrificing death for the well-being of your wife and your kids. Is that how you see yourself? Or do you just see a life of mundane hassles and headaches? You know, I've got to get up and I've got to go to work again. I'm just slogging it out. I'm trudging through this gray fog of blandness and meaninglessness from one weekend to the next, where at least I get, you know, a little relief, a little momentary thrill in the big game, you know, or the, or the golf course or the lake. Do you see your children as, as simply inconvenient biological byproducts of your honeymoon night? And at least I pay the bills and I put the roof over their head and I give them food and shoes. Or, do you see your role as father as a magnificent, glorious honor that allows you to take part in eternal realities that are significant and meaningful beyond your wildest imaginations? Now, what does that look like? What are the practical implications of all of this talk? Well, really, the question for every one of us fathers for the rest of our lives will always be, how faithfully am I living out my place in God's pageant? Fathers, how accurately are you showing men and angels what God is really like? Because that is what your fatherhood is all about. It's all about God. So if your fatherhood is really about God, if, if it's all about showing what God is like and, watching the, and showing the, the watching universe what God is like, most of that universe, by the way, you cannot see. If fatherhood is about showing that universe what God is like, then one of the most helpful things that you can do in your role as a father is to know what God the Father is really like so that you can accurately portray Him. So what is God like? How does God relate to His children? Well, there are so many things that I could say about that, aren't there? Just think about it. God disciplines His children, not out of wrath and anger, but out of love and for their own good. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
That's what God is like. But how many of us fathers don't discipline our children at all? Or at least not enough? Or when we do discipline them, when we're finally fed up with them, which is often what it is, isn't it, men? How many of us discipline them out of anger and frustration? Not because we love them. Not because we care for them. Not because we see that they're going down this path of destruction and we want to rescue them from that for their own good. But because we love ourselves. And we're sick and tired of the hassle of kids who won't jump through our hoops. God provides for His children. Matthew 7, 9-11 through or which one of you, if, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We have a, a Father in heaven who provides for, for his children. How many of us fathers really display that kind of, that kind of great-hearted generosity to our children? God leads His children. Romans 8.14 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. God leads His children. How many of us fathers leave our children to their own devices? Who, who, how many of us fathers just let our kids go? You know, we, especially all, our older kids, we, we stand back we throw up our hands. We, we let them go on their own way. We say, well, you know, I've done all I can. There they go. You know, what am I supposed to do? Boys will be boys after all, you know. We watch as they plunge themselves headlong into all kinds of foolishness and destructiveness. God leads His children. God intimately embraces and welcomes His children Romans 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. How many of our children are afraid of us, men? But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This intimate relationship. But how many of us fathers recoil from physical warmth and, and emotional intimacy with our kids. I'm just not that way. You know, my, my dad never hugged me and I turned out alright. Can't you tell I turned out alright? Well, you, you may not be that way by nature. But the Father in Heaven is. And your fatherhood isn't about you telling the watching universe of what you are like, it's about telling the watching universe what God is like. Saying, I'm not that way by nature doesn't cut it. You're not anything like God is by nature. Neither am I. That's not what it's about. It's not about you. It's about God. There are other ways of seeing what God the Father is really like. There are so many ways that we can, places that we can look that we can see what He is really like so that we can accurately portray Him Jesus says in John 14:9, "Whoever has seen me has seen who? 
You know how it goes? Whoever has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. How do we get a real good picture of what the Father is like? Well, we look at the Son. Seeing Jesus is a clear way of seeing what the Father is really like. Think about how Jesus treats us. He, he does not remain aloof and distanced and cold from us, does He? I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 4 for just a moment. Look at verses 15 and 16. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now men, this is a tough one for us. I know it is. But think about what this passage says about how Jesus treats us. He does not remain aloof and distanced from us. He does not remain on top of Mount Sinai in clouds and fire, hurling down His commands at us. Hey you, get your act together! What's wrong with you anyway? It's not the way Jesus responds to us, is it? In the Incarnation, when Jesus became a man, He comes to earth and He dwells with us. He crawls into our skin and He looks at at the world through our eyes. He enters our world. He enters into our life. And He experienced life on this planet in the exact same way that you and I experience it. He, he knows what it's like to be tempted. He experiences the direct assault of temptation from Satan himself in the wilderness of Judea. He knows what it's like. He, he knows what it's like to be tired and hungry. He's sitting at Jacob's well in John 4. He sits down. He's tired. He's hungry. He says, you guys, you guys go get supper. I'm just going to sit here and rest. He knows what it's like to be exhausted. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. Oh, by the way, young lady, would you give me a drink? He weeps with sorrow at Lazarus' tomb. He knows the pain of losing someone he loves. He experiences life the exact same way that you and I experience life. That's what Hebrews 4 says. And because that is true, Hebrews 4 says that he is able to be our merciful, sympathetic, faithful high priest. Now, did you notice what that produces in us? Look at, that, look at this passage again. Look at Hebrews 4.16. How do we respond? How do we respond when we really grasp what it meant for Jesus to enter into our world, how do we respond when we really get a hold of that? Do you see this implication of Jesus drawing near to us in the Incarnation and when He became man? Look at, look at this passage again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in whom, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, so what? We'll look at the next verse. Let us then... Therefore, because of that, let us 
Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, men, brothers and sisters, all of us, when we come to grips with what it really means to have a high priest who's sympathetic with us, who draws near to us, who looks at the world through our eyes and experiences life in our skin, when we really get a hold of that, we respond by gladly and freely and confidently drawing near to Him, laying bare our hearts before Him, finding mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And here's my point. The exact same thing will be true with our kids. Fathers, think about it. Do you want your kids to draw near to you with confidence? Where do you want your kids to go when, they, when they're in a time of need? Where do you want them to go? MTV? I mean, you know, it, their time of need, do you think Beavis and Butthead are going to give them wisdom? Mercy and grace to help them? Where do you want them to go? You want them to go to you, don't you? If you want them to gladly and freely pour their hearts out to you when they're confused or afraid or anxious or insecure or whatever, if you want to have conversations with them where you don't feel like you're pulling teeth just to get you know monosyllable grunt answers out of them, or just yes and no out of them, or uh-huh, what do you have to do? You have to do what Jesus did. You have to enter into their world. And you have to crawl inside their skin and you have to try to experience the world the way they experience the world. Try to understand and know them and sympathize with them and see things the way they see things. Not because necessarily they're right, but you've got to crawl in there and see it. And then, when they know that that's the kind of man you are, brothers, then they will feel free to draw near to you in their time of need. Just like we feel free to draw near to Christ in our time of need when we know what He is really like. But how often do we fathers just totally fail to do any of that? How often do we blow it? How often are we what the book of Proverbs calls a fool? Proverbs says a fool delights not in understanding, but in only in airing his own opinion. How often are we fools who only enter into a relationship with our kids so that we can talk at them and give them our opinion. And we don't care a bit what the world looks like through their eyes. We could go on and on. That's the way Jesus looks. If Jesus, if seeing Jesus is to see the Father, then to portray the Father means to act like Jesus. And that's the way Jesus is. The point is, brothers, you see, that your fatherhood, you need to see your fatherhood as a sacred calling. A calling that's not just about little things. But it's about magnificent and glorious things. See the whole world in general and see your fatherhood in particular as a glorious picture of the King and the Father from whom are all things and by whom are all things. Live out your lives as, as faithful cast members 
faithful cast members of this pageant of the universe. It's all about God. It's not about you. It's not about you and your little kingdom. And your little world, it's about God. I want to close with this word of encouragement for us. Jesus Christ will help you. He will help us with all of these things. He will fill you with His Spirit and He'll strengthen you with His Word. He'll encourage you with His people. He'll empower you with His grace to do all that He commands you to do. And more than that, He will forgive you when you blow it. And you're going to blow it. You're going to blow it. I'm going to blow it probably before I walk through these doors in a half an hour. We're going to blow it, man. But Jesus Christ, one of the wonderful things about seeing this picture of God is these aren't just hoops for us to jump through. Okay, God says I've got to discipline my kids. Okay, I've got to discipline my kids. Okay, God says I've got to provide for them. Okay, I've got to provide for them. I've got to encourage them and draw alongside them. Okay, I've got to encourage them. You know, what a drag. That's not what these things are. I mean, there are standards for us, but they're more than that. That's the way God is towards you. So when you blow it, yes, He's going to discipline you out of love and mercy and compassion because He wants to see a harvest of of the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. He's going to provide for you. He's going to give you all you need to obey Him in these ways. He's going to come and encourage you. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows what it's like. So you can go to Him and find mercy and grace to help you be this kind of father. All of these things that, that God is and that Jesus portrays to us of the face of the Father aren't just hoops for us to jump through. This is the way God really is towards you, men. So when you blow it, when we blow it, He is, he is, he is there to forgive us and to pick you up and to help you again and again and again and again. After all, when you think about it this way, your family and your fatherhood, men, is ultimately about Him. And His glory is ultimately at stake in your fatherhood. And He will not lightly let you diminish His glory. He will fight in you and He will fight for you to uphold His glory before a watching universe So hope in Him and call on Him. Call on Him for wisdom and for strength and for grace as you live out this this grand, magnificent, glorious, cosmic story. Ask Him for help as you live out this grand, magnificent, glorious, cosmic story around the dinner table today. As you live out this cosmic story at the bedside tonight, at the soccer field tomorrow, in the car, everywhere else your fatherhood takes you. In all of the little details, ask God to help you live that out for the sake of His glory and His honor. And He will honor that and He will help us. Let's pray together and ask Him to help.